Yes? Okay, you know that I am unfortunately not one of you because I have said soccer instead of football. Okay, that was, that was tell number one, okay? But even if you're not a soccer fan, you probably know the name David Beckham. Um, I did not know this until literally this morning that he married one of the Spice Girls. Oh my gosh. I'm, that's so weird, okay? If you don't know who the Spice Girls are, you are blessed, okay? Also showing my bias there as well. Um, David Beckham is, is one of the, is, was one of the world's most renowned soccer players, football players. Okay, you, I'm just going to skip it from here on out, okay? He's incredible. People know his name, even if you're not a soccer fan. And if, you're no a soccer, if you are a soccer fan, you probably know how much he changed the sport and how much he contributed to all of this and all kinds of things that I um, could have memorized as part of this illustration but didn't because I'm trying to be authentic and that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Okay. Anyway, I was struck by the story he told in an interview one time about how, so he has three sons, um, and his three sons, when they were a lot younger, they're now, I think most or all three of them are uh, adults now, but um, their names are, are Brooklyn, Romeo, and Cruz, which if you thought my kids' names, uh, Ransom and Deacon were weird, that's, that's like, man, I'm just going to hand my hipster card over to David Beckham. Um, but he told this story about how um, when his when they were particularly young, they would play soccer in the backyard, just like everybody else. And, um, and, and he would ask him, like, okay, who are you going to be? Who are you playing as right now? And, and Brooklyn, the oldest, um, I don't remember. I, honestly, when I heard this, I didn't recognize the, other, the, the stars that they were playing as. So let's pretend it's like Pele, because I know his name. Um, uh, I, Romeo, I don't know who he picked, but he picked somebody else. And Cruz, the youngest... It was really adorable the way he told it because he said that with like great pride, he said, I am David Beckham, okay? Now, what's, what's amazing about this story is that Cruz, at this age, he knew that David Beckham was this amazing soccer or football player, right? He knew he was amazing because he would hear it on ESPN. They were talking about when his dad had, you know, the, the, the show on, or, or, or it would be a conversation in the house, like, you know, David Beckham this, David Beckham that, whatever. He didn't know that that was his dad. Like, can you imagine this kid's face when, he, when, when one day somebody, whether it's his dad or his brother, told him, like, hey, you know, you know that's your dad, right? Like, David Beckham, the guy you were playing as, that's, that's him. You're, he's your dad. You, he's not just an amazing soccer player. You, you're not just pretending to be him. You are, in a sense, born in his image. You're related to him. You're his and he's yours. You don't have to just watch him from afar at a distance. Can you imagine what that would be like? You see, whether we're asking a question of like, okay, who is David Beckham, right? Or, or maybe even to, to transition this illustration, who is God? That question of who is God is important, but who is God misses the best part of the good news. It misses the best part of the gospel, which is who are we to God? See, it's not just who God is. It is God is amazing. But he's our dad. You see, 
A lot of us grew up in maybe churches, if you grew up in church at all, where you heard the gospel defined as, you know, Jesus died for your sins, and yes, that is true. In a lot of ways, that describes who God is, okay? He's, he's Jesus, and he's, he's loving, right? He's gracious. He's full of grace and truth. He's merciful. Hesed, the Hebrew word for, for steadfast love and kindness, is the word that is, is most applied to God in the Old Testament, right? Th- these things are all true, but if, without adoption, we don't actually fully appreciate or understand who are we to God? And that the word that we've been using the last few weeks as we've been in Galatians, this word covenant, that's the part that in a lot of ways is missing from the, our understanding of the gospel, right? That's what adoption communicates, okay? Who we are to God is that we are so beloved, even though we're broken, that he made slaves into his sons. And that's what we're talking about this morning, okay? So I've got three points this morning. The first is this. It's, it's, it's that we are made, we are, we are slaves and we go from slaves to sons. And so the first part of this is that we've been enslaved to spiritual performance. This is what Paul is describing when he says that we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, right? To the, the ideologies that are not of God, the ways that we try to earn and perform our dignity, value, and worth that is not connected to God but is on our own. So when I say, you know, when we go from slave to son, when I say slave, here's what I mean by that. I mean someone whose value and worth is determined by what he can do for God. Someone's value or worth is being determined by what he or she can do for God. In other words, it is a relationship with God by doing enough. The problem with that is it feels like and actually is the equivalent, the spiritual equivalent of being on a hamster wheel. You're putting forth all this effort and all this energy and you can go faster and faster and go nowhere and nowhere at the same time. We think, if I could just do a little bit more, maybe he'll be happier, maybe I'll be happy. See, the Galatians, um, what Paul is speaking into here uh, is, is a little bit different from our context though, and this bears kind of dwelling in for a minute. See, the master in this slave-master relationship that Paul's describing for his, for his audience would have been, you know, the alternative to son, sonship in slavery would have been this kind of Jewish religious performance in circumcision. And if you've been here for the last few weeks, I won't regurgitate that, but, but that's, that's what he's trying to speak into, right? Ours is a little bit different. Instead of a religious kind of performance or spiritual performance, it's an irreligious secular performance, that just saturates our entire world, right? I love, uh, Mark Sayers says it well this way. He says um, that secularism is the pursuit of the kingdom without the king, okay? It's the pursuit of the kingdom without the king. The idea being that, that we can pursue a flourishing world and a flourishing life for ourselves, for our families, etc. but we don't need the king to do that because, like, we're our own king, in a sense. But the problem with that is it still... It, it doesn't actually change much. There's still a spiritual performance, but it's just untethered from God now. And so if you felt like, like or here's what I'm trying to describe, I guess. I think a lot of times I live and act in such a way that is about my spiritual performance, but I'm not actively or consciously or specifically thinking about trying, like I'm doing this because I want God to love me. But it's just this weird habit of the heart. 
That's what I'm talking about. It's this, this pursuit of the kingdom without the king. It promises freedom because we get to be our own kings, but it's actually just as much, if not maybe even more crushing than any kind of moralism that we are trying to overcorrect from. We're still performing. We're still feeling that pressure and that burden. It's just a, it's a spiritual bridge to nowhere. It's just a lot harder to trace, and trace back to the roots in our hearts and pin it down. Ironically, even though that was the kind of Jewish religious context that, that Paul was speaking into, what the Galatians would have been familiar with was, is actually pretty similar to ours, which is the kind of the Roman pantheon or the, the, the Greek pantheon of gods, right? See, the, the, the neighbors of the Christians that Paul's talking to would, believed that behind every dimension of human life, whether it's our food and agricultural development, it's our, it's our making, it's our living, our loving, our are cultivating all of that. Every industry has a God behind it. And so what you have to do if you want to be blessed in that effort is you have to please that God. They would have names like Zeus or Athena. And in a sense, we still believe that. Except our gods aren't named Zeus or Athena. They're named comfort or image or wealth or time. <laughs> I shared last week about how, man, one of the ways that like perennially I struggle to, to live as a son and not as a slave, even though I didn't use that language, is, is this idea of disappointing people, which is like a chameleon God, <laughs> right? Because it takes the form or shape of whatever God it is I'm trying to not disappoint in your lives, right? It's the same, like this is universal. This is the human heart in the fall, and it's trap. It's entrapment. Okay. Um, speaking of traps, have you actually? I just also learned about this this week. Have you ever heard of a monkey trap? Have you heard of this? Anybody? So it's this is commonly used in in like native South America. But it's, the idea is you take a gourd or a coconut or something like that, and you drill a hole in it to put a banana. But the hole, and the hole is big enough that the monkey can slip its hand in to get the banana. But once it makes a fist or grabs the banana, the hole is too big for him to pull it out. And the, the monkey is, is not smart enough to realize that, like, okay, I can either be free or I can have the banana. And so it, hunters will trap monkeys and find them trapped by their own desires. Image, comfort. Wealth, we grasp onto these things, and they trap us. That is not freedom, that is not confidence, and it's not the kind of freedom or confidence, even if you can find some definition that it could fit under, it's not the kind that God promises and wants for us. That freedom is being adopted as sons of God. Let me read verses 4 through 5 and then verse 7, because that's, this is the gospel in Galatians 4. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, and by the way, that word redeem is the same word that is used to purchase slaves in the ancient Near East. He's saying he's buying you for a price. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 7, so you were no longer a slave but a son, and if a son than an heir through God. So if a slave is someone whose value is determined by what 
he can do for God, then a son is one whose value and worth is determined by what God has done for him or her. A son is someone whose value and worth is determined by what God has done for him or her. If a slave is a re- slavery is a relationship with God through doing enough, then sonship is a relationship with God by being enough through our relationship with Christ because of what Christ has done. That's what this is describing. Now, let me, I want to address something. I said it very intentionally. A son is someone uh, whose value and worth is determined by what God has done for him or her. And I didn't say son or daughter. I said a son because that's how Paul is using it in this passage. But more to the point, it's very intentional and it's not misogynistic. It's not saying or implying that women are excluded in this sense. What Paul is trying to get across and what we have got to hear here is, is that regardless of whether we are a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, we are still heirs. That's what that's communicating. Just before in chapter 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This, that verse is, is perennially misused and abused to, to fit all kinds of different agendas in all kinds of different ways. What it's trying to get at is that before God, our standing is one of equal value. We are heirs. So when I say we are sons of God, men and women both, that is to say we are heirs in a way that is unique and connected to the Son of God. It's revolutionary. That would have been very offensive to Paul's original audience, but for exact opposite reasons, it would be for us. Okay? When I say that it's important to preserve the language of sons of God, it's because when Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal son himself was not the firstborn son. He was not the heir. Though he had a small inheritance, he was not the heir. And in that parable, this secondborn, this younger son, goes to his dad and says, hey, dad, I need to cash in on that inheritance right now. Because functionally what he is saying is the only value you have to me as my father is what you can give to me when you die. So can we just pretend that's happened already? It was an unadoption. It was an abandonment of his father, an abandonment of his status as son. And he left and cashed in on that to go squander it on all kinds of different debauchery. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, except that includes you. You get stuck, right? He hits the lowest of the low points, and at that point, he's eating the same food that he's feeding to pigs, which for a, an Israeli Jew at that time would have been just, like, there is no way to communicate a, a, a rock bottom more than rock bottom in that, okay? And when he hits rock bottom, he says he makes a, pl- it says he makes a plan. He says to himself, I'm going to go back to my dad, and this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say... I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like your hired men. Slaves, servants, transactional relationship. Because he's thinking to himself, it's it's better to be a slave to a good master than an orphan without a father at all. And one of my favorite parts about that that parable is, is that he actually never even gets the chance to say it. Because as he's coming over the horizon, his, his father sees him 
at a distance, sees his silhouette and sprints through town, hiking up his robe and shamefully exposing his, his legs, which men did not do in, in Jewish culture at that time. His father embraces him, doesn't give him a chance to breathe, never mind utter the words he planned. He calls for the, the family robe and ring and says, prepare a party, prepare a feast, slaughter the fattened calf, for my son has returned home. And in so doing, what he does is this, he reclaims his beloved and restores sonship that God never that from God's perspective, never ceased to exist. So even in so doing, what he's doing is he is reassuring his son of his belovedness, of his sonship. And his son didn't think he deserved it, and he was, they were both right. Now, there's two people, and as Tim Keller says, this, this is, should be more accurately called either the parable of the prodigal God or the parable of the two sons, because there's another son. It's the elder brother. It's the firstborn son. It's the actual heir, right? He's the, uh, I would describe him as the OG party pooper, okay? Because when the party is getting started, the older son doesn't go in. Instead, he's throwing a tantrum and pouting um, outside of the house, and the father goes and pursues him too. The father goes and pursues him and says, why aren't you there? And he says that you're giving away part of my inheritance, I've done everything that you've asked. And not only did you, have you never slaughtered the fattened calf for me, but you're, you're spending my inheritance to give him another one. That's slavery. The older brother is enslaved to spiritual performance. His entitlement to his inheritance betrays and exposes that. But the father's love makes it even more clear. It makes it clear that he was guilt-ridden instead of grace-driven. And he was calculating and determining his relationship with his father on the basis of his sin instead of on the basis of his father's character, his father's heart. Since we've already talked about soccer this morning, um, any Ted Lasso fans? Okay, awesome. Hey, you know what? Exactly. I am not a soccer fan, but I am a Ted Lasso fan. Season three is... Not a huge fan, but it's a different sermon illustration, okay? Um, one of my favorite scenes in the entire show, though, is in season two, um, and it involves Jamie Tart. Okay? Uh, Jamie Tart is, is, is on the team that Ted Lasso is coaching, and he is, he, I mean, he is painfully egotistical. I mean, it is really, truly obnoxious and, and off-putting. Like, you can't help but just... Uh, it's, it's bad. It's hyperbolic. You find out during the season that a lot of this seems rooted in the fact that he has spent his entire life trying to please his dad, trying to make his dad happy with him, trying to earn his dad's approval. And after every single game, his dad smacks him upside the head and yells at him. Even if they won, even if he scored three goals, he passed a ball one time instead of continuing to score another goal, right? And so at the, after the game, playing his former team, Manchester United, the, the, their team loses, and they're like trying to recover from this and figure out what the heck happened, and his dad walks into the locker room unannounced and 
just starts, like interrupts everything, just starts berating him and like shaming him in front of his entire team for leaving Manchester United for this loser team that's like, they can hear him. <laughs> They're all right there. And then he comes up to him, he has the gall to be like, hey, by the way, I need a field pass so that I can get my friends to go see the pitch, to see the field. This is such a picture of what enslavement looks like. The value Jamie Tart had, to, from his father's perspective, the only value Jamie had was what he can do for him. And it was never enough. Jamie, in ways that anybody can empathize with, just decks him in the face. Okay, That's where the sermon illustration stops being totally applicable, just for the record. But as, like, as his dad is dragged away, the character in the show that Jamie has had the most conflict with and butting the heads most with on the team, who also has a healthy ego himself, just walks across the locker room and hugs him, Roy Kent, just embraces him and holds him as he begins to sob. Roy Kent is not the father in the gospel or in the parable of the, the prodigal son. He's what the older brother should have done. He is, he demonstrated what Jesus is telling the parable, the purpose that Jesus had in telling the parable in the first place is to show himself as the true and better older brother who pursued the prodigal son, that's us, not just across a locker room or across countries to find him again, and not just in our poverty, spiritual or otherwise, and or not even just lovingly despite our senselessness in our rebellion and the stupidity of what we are indulging in our ego, but in our place and unto, our, and unto his death. See, when, when Paul is saying that God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that redemption is the cross. Jesus isn't just dying for our sins. On the cross... God the Son experienced our orphanage in order to restore God the Father's parentage of us. He cried in desperation from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, by the way, literally every time Jesus addresses God in the Bible, he says, Father, except this time. It's the only time in the Gospels that Jesus, that God the Son, does not refer to God the Father as Father. And that is because he cried that in desperation in our place so that in, we can shout in celebration, Abba, Father, love is my freedom. My soul is at peace. This is why Martin Luther said about our Father in heaven, that line in the Lord's Prayer, he says that there is... is and, and also on this passage in his commentary in the Galatians, which is legendary, he says there is more eloquence in that word, Abba, Father, than in all the orations of a Demosthenes or Cicero put together. My Father, oh, there is music there, there is eloquence there, there is the very essence of heaven's own bliss in that word. And I would add to that the Father's adoration in us. 
I, when talking to one of you before, um, before we started this morning, uh, Danny runs down over there. He says, very hard to live in a non-transaction, sorry, he says, very hard to live non-transactionally in a transactional world. And that is what Paul is talking about in the, the bookends of this passage when he talks about being reassured through the Spirit. That's what he's getting at when he uses this language. Let me reread it for our, to remember. Verses 1 through 2 and then 6. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And because you are sons, verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, we haven't fully come into our own yet. And because of that, our experience of our own adoption, of, of, of being a son of God, being an heir, is, let's just call it inconsistent at best. Right? There, and specifically, there's like, there are three childhood tensions here. Three kind of dimensions to adoption, historical, circumstantial, and personal. Historically, what Paul is saying is, is that Old Testament Israel, the people of God, were God's people as children, as child heirs. But now, what Jesus has done, what he has done on the cross, that adoption, the court documents are signed and sealed. It is a done deal. There is no in-between liminality. There is no already, not yet, in terms of our status before God. And therefore, the New Testament church is God's people as adult heirs, and we can, through the Spirit, experience the love of the Father in a new and unique way that God's people did not have before, and that's incredible. Circumstantially, though, there is an already but not yet tension here still, <laughs> right? We are adopted as sons, but we still live in an orphaned world. Our experience of God's fatherhood is still through, as Paul says elsewhere, a glass dimly. And therefore, personally, we, need to, we have to remember that our adoption is not a change in nature. It's a change in status. It's a change in our relationship with God. There is something unique and different about what Jesus has done that ties us and connects us to our Father in heaven in ways that Old Testament Israel didn't, was not blessed to experience, that we are particularly and especially blessed in ways that it's mysterious and weird and different. But that is the Holy Spirit's role in that, is to reveal the Son in and through the love of the Father. But if, that's a change, if, that's, if, if that is not a change in nature, but it is a change in status, that, that means we need to remember something else. And that is that when we act as orphans, that doesn't mean we aren't sons. When we act as orphans, that means, doesn't mean we aren't sons because the lie of the God, whatever God it is that is spiritual performance, would have us believe is that our acting as orphans is proof of our orphanage. That's proof of our status. Paul says, no, that is not the case at all. In fact, it is relying on our adoption as sons and heirs that helps us to live less like orphans and to live more free as sons. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into the Q&A in here in a minute, but I want to I kind of speak especially to the men in the room this morning. Um, there are a lot of reasons this could be 
the case culturally, I think, is, is the case, and I think especially even more so generationally. But I think there's something about the way men are wired and the way that um, we experience fatherhood if we are fathers or the way we long to experience fatherhood if we're not able to be fathers for any reason. Like there is so much, there's, bound, there's a lot bound up in this, in the fatherhood of God and our sonship that is especially and particularly hard. It's not that, that those of you who are women, like it's not that women don't experience this at all or even it's just not that big of a deal. I'm just saying it's like, it's actually even harder, I think, for men. And that is especially true if your time as a kid, as a, your opportunity to experience what it's like to be in a human earthly sense, a beloved son, has either been cut short, either you grew up without a dad or your dad passed before, it was too early either way, or maybe because your, your experience of a beloved son was was, it was maybe compromised, but if not compromised, really broken because your dad was not loving toward you. There is an existential block and barrier for, for guys, especially to the degree that that is true, that makes us harder to believe that God, our Father, could love us and not expect us to spiritually perform to earn it. It is a perennial thing. It is foreign. Um, Donald Miller, who wrote the book Blue Like Jazz, also wrote another book that I rarely hear anybody talk about um, called To Own a Dragon. And what I love about this book, and it's, 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 it's a kind of an autobiography about what it was like to hear people talk about God as a father without having one. He said it's as weird and strange and foreign of an experience as owning a dragon. It required a lot of imagination. And to apply this, I think, and even to speak, okay, now I'm talking about gen men, like generally, but I want to talk about like us as guys here at the table too. Because I think there's, a, for, for many, um, the church, for a lot of men, the church is used to speaking in, in a particular voice, which is this, like, hey, stop being selfish, men. Stop, like, you know, working uh, and making work your God and your hobbies your God and being selfish, your, your wife and kids you need you. And by the way, all that's true if it applies, absolutely, okay? But I have not seen that for a while. Like, especially if you're Gen X or younger. I see that a lot less among men. Instead, I see the opposite. I see you trying to correct from that, from that place. I hear you, I see you hearing that message and now what, I, what you need to hear is that your beloved and you're finite, and that it's actually okay if you feel a need for friendship with other guys, and that you can't do it all, and you never were supposed to, and you're going to fail, and you need other people around you, and that you especially need other men around you to help remind you that you are adopted in ways that, let's just be honest, like men can only speak to men on certain things and in and, and certain ways or potency in the similar ways that women are able to speak to other women in ways that are particularly potent to. And this is a message I think we need to hear a lot more. Right? We're overcorrecting in a lot of ways, but the, the goal, the, the root problem is the same thing. We try, when we don't critique the spiritual performance that causes the problem in the first place, and we just overcorrect, we're still operating on spiritual performance. And what you need to know is that before you can be a good dad or be a good husband or a good man, 
you need to know that you're a beloved son. And that especially for guys, but not only, so much of our living as orphans is because we suffer from beloved son amnesia. We suffer from forgetting what Darren's going to lead us in singing here in a minute. Is a son of, this is from A Son of God, a song by Nathan Partain. It says, I lie down and rest and work no longer. I breathe in refreshed, no more soiled in disgrace. I look, at, I look up at him to whom I am kneeling, and I see just delight there in my father's face. Not tolerance, not putting up with you. Not I wish you had done this differently, or I wish you had done this better, or I wish you hadn't done this at all. Delight. I am last and low because I fight no longer to be right or good or to prove my own worth. I'm not driven or pushed or weighed down with duty. I am filled with release that Christ did all for me. And so whoever you are, whether men or women, Christian or not Christian, if you want to experience this gospel freedom, like I mean, I mean I, I, even as I'm talking and preaching on this, by the way, like I, I feel myself getting lighter. Like, I know so many things that I carry and so much of my stress. It may still be stressful, but it is amplified by this uncritiqued beloved son amnesia and spiritual performance that is, is striving like a save instead of resting as a son. The antidote then is, it is simple is what first John what John is saying in first John 3 verses 1 through 2 he says see in the form of this by the way when he says see it's actually the imperative so it's a command as in like behold look at what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of god called is the same word translated as named or declared as in like a judicial declaration you are now given the last name of yahweh and so we are. He's like, even John, as he's writing, he's saying like, just in case you're wondering if this is like, applies to you, yes. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The world is an orphaned still. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Our inheritance is not, we have not come into our inheritance yet, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's kind of like, there's a lot of prepositions and, and pronouns here, but what was, what was he saying? He's saying, at that moment, we will see in our father's face the delight of our own adoption. We will come into in our inheritance and we will then know not just who he is, but whose we are and who we are to him fully and completely. So if you are suffering from beloved son amnesia, if you feel like you are living more as a slave than as a son, then look at your sonship. Look at Christ's adoption. Look at, savor it, imbibe it, dwell in it, and cry, Abba, Father. Put it, put it on, try it on. I know it's like weird sometimes when you're praying, you're like, ah, this is weird. I'm just, like, I'm just in a room by myself and, you know, okay, God, I guess you can hear me. And... Abba, Father, are you too good to be true? I, I promise you, I don't promise many things, I promise you, 
He will meet you there. He absolutely will. Think about it this way. One of the implications of adoption, this, this is where I'll end before we jump into the Q&A. One of these implications, what it means to be adopted, what it means to be in Christ, as we've been talking about throughout the whole book of Galatians, means that we have as much right to access God the Father as God has access to himself. We have as much right to access our Father in heaven as God the Son has to access God the Father. That's what he was praying in Gethsemane when he said, I, w- I pray that they would be one as you and I, Father, are one. So that's, it's right there. And resting in the grip of our Father's embrace is going to be the only way to let go of that idol to get out of that monkey trap. But it's always there. It is yours. It is your inheritance. It is owed you not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. So take it. It's not a trap. It's freedom. All right. No questions this morning. Oh, wait, here's one. What's the difference between performance and obedience? The deaths of Ananias and Sapphira come to mind. Look, anyone who brings up Ananias and Sapphira, man, you're trying to hurt me. Cool. The difference between performance and obedience is this. Performance is a way of earning love. Obedience is a way of responding to it. Obedience is not performance. It's it's tricky like that. (laughs) Turns out it involves our hearts, right? It has to do with our motive. Performance is trying to impress God, and when you're talking about impressing one who's looking at you through the lens of his son, how can you be more impressive than Jesus? Spoiler alert, you can't, okay? The son's record is your record. You can't impress God any more than Christ already has. What's left is to enjoy him. It's to celebrate that reality. And yes, respond and live into it because it's who you are now. It's not a way of finding your... Oh, man, here we go. Let's go. <laughs> Do not go and find yourself in somewhere. You will be lost. If you want to be found, allow God to declare who you are and then live accordingly. In one sense, yes, it's harder. But in a lot of sense, it's a lot more fun. And it's better. And yes, it actually is easier too because it's not in jeopardy. Can you... I mean... I. This is a rhetorical question because you can imagine it because this is how all of us live apart from Christ, right? Can you imagine, though, trying to live in such a way that your very person, your identity, your dignity, value, and worth is dependent on how well you do that? That sounds terrible. That kingdom without a king, with me as a king, that sounds like an absolute... That's... No. (laughs) We'll talk about Ananias and Sapphira another time. Next question. Yes, they were performing there. They were trying to squeeze. They were actually, it was actually worse than performing. What they were trying to do was, um, uh, it was subterfuge. It was acting not in order to get God's love, but to, to earn the praise of man, right? Okay. How can we hold the message of the prodigal son with passages like 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22? And thank you for including the... NIV there, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. 
it would, have known, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. And you're just going for broke here. Is it that the prodigal son is about the Jewish people as a whole and less about an individual, or is there some way to understand verses that suggest being cut off from God like branches that have been cut off? Okay, let me go back to the prodigal son. Part of what Jesus is doing in, in telling that parable, because this is... In his audience, who was hearing the parable live, were two groups of people. There were those who would have been younger sons, i.e. The, the, the least of these, those who were struggling under the Roman rule and also the, the requirements of the Pharisees and were not bearing up under the burden of that religious spiritual performance very well, right? Um, also in his audience were the Pharisees. They were the older brothers. And he intentionally leaves the story unfinished. If you've read the parable of the prodigal son, you know that the elder brother, once, once the father tells him, what do you mean? You've always been my son. I love you. Come in and celebrate for your brother has been lost and is now found. He doesn't say whether, like how the older son responds to that invitation. So the openness of that invitation is vitally important to understand this passage in, in 2 Peter, which is that Yes, if you don't ever respond to the invitation, even if you're performing and playing the part, you've demonstrated that you were never the, a son to begin with. But if, it, if, if you're saying like, no, no, I, that, that, sounds, that sounds terrible. No, I want to know what it means to have our, God as our father. Then this verse doesn't apply to you. The purpose of this verse is not to make you doubt your assurance. It's to give you a reassurance that those who are persecuting you and causing all this prob these problems for you and everything, like, don't worry about them. Rest in your sonship. Rest in your inheritance that God promises you. That's the purpose there. It's not to make you doubt. It's actually to reassure. Okay. So that's the end of Q&A. Let's talk about communion. And um, one of the themes I had to, unfortunately, cut from, I cut a lot from every sermon. It's really hard for me and much better for you. Um, but one of the things that Paul is doing in Galatians is he's using language that would have brought to mind and heart the story of Exodus, which if you're familiar with it, even in a pop level from the Prince of Egypt or something along the lines, you know that this was the story of God rescuing his people from slavery. And so when Paul's using that language of slavery, this is something that would have been coming to mind for his audience at the time. And in that process, in order to rescue uh, God's people from the grip of Pharaoh as their slave master, he had to do the, the 10 plagues, right? And the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, proverbially speaking, was the death of the firstborn. And this is referred to as Passover. And at Passover, God sent his angel of death through, the, uh, through Egypt. And anyone that had a sacrificial lamb, the blood of the lamb on the door jam, i.e. Israel, the, the angel of death passed over and continued on. And Pharaoh lost his firstborn son. So what's, what, what Paul is communicating is that, that adoption, there's a price to adoption. There's a price to redeem slaves from, slave, uh, from, slaves from slavery into sonship. And so what, what he's using and hearkening on, and depending on this language, is, is this. He's saying that God the Father said to Pharaoh, okay, fine, 
You want to keep my son, Israel, whom I want to adopt, who I want to rescue and to be in relationship with me? That's what it means when he says, I want them to be able to worship me. He's saying, I can't do it under slavery because they're my son, and no son of mine is going to be enslaved to a pharaoh. So if you want to keep my son, fine, I'll take yours. God the Father says to us, you want to be my son? Here, take mine. That's the cross. That's the adoption. That's the good news. Israel's geographic exodus foreshadowed our ultimate adoption from slaves to sons. And so on the night that he was betrayed, which was Passover, Jesus was with his 12 friends who represented the 12 tribes.